Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie Nui here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. Did you know that the Australian Society of Anesthetists publishes a scientific journal? Yes, it's called Anesthesia and Intensive Care, and it's often distinguished by an image of a historical item on the cover. That's accompanied by a historical cover note. And then you'll find all the usual things that you'll find in journals, original articles, review articles, case reports, letters to the editor. And I hear that the case reports are particularly useful for those studying for the second part exam. Anesthesia and Intensive Care is available for free as part of your ASA membership. ASA members can access the journal at any time by logging onto the ASA website. You should also be getting a copy of it sent to your home, but you can, of course, opt to receive it electronically, which is better for the environment, and receive email notifications of articles that have been published. Non-members can access the journal with a subscription, and it can be found on the Sage Journals website. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So in this episode, I am chatting with Michael Cooper, who's an anaesthetist from Sydney and also on the editorial board of Anesthesia and Intensive Care. He also chairs a number of the subcommittees of the journal, which we're about to learn more about. We're going to be taking a sneak peek into the workings of the journal and what happens behind the scenes, as well as announcing the prize winners for this year, which is always a great announcement to make. All right, so let's get into it. Thank you for giving up some time to have a chat with me about this. In terms of the journal, you're on the editorial board, is that right? Correct, yes. And I edit the history supplement of the journal. And also I chair some of the subcommittees that we're talking about today, the Best Paper Award and the Junior Researcher Award. Ah, okay. So there's John Loadsman, who's editor-in-chief. Correct. And there's the editorial board. Correct. And then there's various subcommittees and members of the editorial board might be involved or even, like yourself, chair those various subcommittees. That's right. Yeah, John's the chief and Linda Webber's the executive editor, helped by Sharon Tivy. And then I do the history supplement once a year. And then there's a whole lot of people who are in the editorial board as well. I'm curious, how many papers would you be reviewing on average, say, in a month or in a year? Oh, in a year, not bad. Half a dozen. Oh, okay. Yeah. But as the editor, you do all the handling and and the corresponding with the authors. And that's so reviewing a paper is maybe an hour or two of work, especially if it's a topic you know. But the handling of the paper is the bit that takes time and getting back to the authors and getting them to sort everything out. And so how many papers might you handle as an editor? I suppose you're receiving them and then you're giving them to the reviewers to review. Correct. Yeah, no, look, I review some of them as well. I do, do do a few of the general papers for the journal, but mostly the history ones. So we've nearly got the history supplement this year out and over the line. When does that come out? They're all online already because SAIT released everything online straight away, but it can take a month or two for the printed version to come out. So I'm expecting the final proofs of that history supplement in the next couple of days. Oh, great. It's good having this little behind-the-scenes chat. Yeah, there's a lot of work goes on in the journal. For years it was run in-house, and the system that we had originally at Edgecliff was a, a homegrown purpose-built system, then John had to make the decision of going with a major publishing house. And Sage have given us greater publicity and our papers get cited more often, which is good. 
I submitted the postoperative nausea, vomiting, consensus update, and that was the first paper I've ever submitted. And I could see why then getting published was such a big feat, even though this was just the Australian adaptation and it didn't go through peer review process. It's like any paper. It's the last 10% of getting it through that process. That's the hard work that a lot of people give up or fall over or just get busy and they just don't get there. I was surprised how much backwards and forwards. I just, the eagle eyes, I was very impressed. Oh, yes. Yeah, Sharon and, and Linda Weber are very astute and they are fantastic. And as John very uh, proudly points out, we have very few errata published of errors in our journal. Some journals, every issue will publish eight, ten errors from the previous issue. And we get very, very few because it goes through so many steps and so many people look at every paper, not just the editor, but further down the line. So it it is a complex process, but I think the quality of what comes out is good. I think so too. But today we're talking about the Anesthesia and Intensive Care Awards that have come out for this year. The, The main award that's awarded every year is the Jeanette Thurwell Award. Yes, that's correct. Anesthesia and intensive care represents a lot of bodies in our region, and it's one of the the bigger journals in the Pacific. So there's a lot of different groups who submit papers to the journal. And about 24 years ago, one of the members of the editorial board, Dennis Hayward, uh, recommended that we have a best paper award to encourage more research and to encourage submission to the journal. And then about in 2014, the then chief editor, Neville Gibbs, recommended that it be named the Jeanette Thurwell Best Paper Award. And Jeanette, as you know, has been a, a major force in medical publishing, not just in Australia, but, but globally as well. I don't know much about Jeanette. Can you tell me a bit more about her? Yes, Jeanette is a Sydney anaesthetist and she was a consultant at the Royal Alexandra Hospital for Children. I had the pleasure and privilege of working with her when I was training and then as a a fellow consultant. And Jeanette has been one of these great powers behind the scenes. And she has been involved when she was executive editor of the journal for many years and something she has done her whole professional career. So she's had over 40 years in medical publishing. Impressive. And her expertise was actually recognised by the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists. And she was the power behind a lot of their publications when she was doing all this as well. So not just for our journal, but also for the World Federation. Correct. As well. Wow. On the global stage. Fantastic. And other ASA publications and everything. So there, there wasn't much that came through that didn't pass Jeanette's eagle eye. So the name was changed? Yes, that was in 2014. And there's a small group within the editorial board of the journal that picked the papers. And the papers are selected on originality and contribution to the literature. Often we look at things that are a little bit different, something to push the boundaries a little bit in our practice. And so uh, there are three people on the selection panel, me, Ross Kennedy in Christchurch and Kwok Ho in Perth. And we all work in different areas. So everybody has a slightly different selection bias. Can I just ask before you go on, Hmm. does that mean that between the three of you, you would have read every article that's been published in the journal? In that calendar year, yes. Wow, that's an impressive amount of journal reading. It's really only the original papers. We're not looking at case reports or reviews. And is this the first year that two papers have won the award? 
Correct. Normally there's a there's a fairly standout paper. And this year, interestingly, we had two papers that when we did all the analysis came out at level pegging. So Great. we approached the ASA because there's a prize that goes with it of some money and going to the National Scientific Congress. Can I ask what the prize money value is? Uh, I think it's $2,000. Not insignificant? Yes, and support to attend the meeting as well, uh, wherever Great. that is in Australia at the time. Yep, I think we've held it over for next year yes. in terms of providing that support. So hopefully they can get a face-to-face -face recognition of their award. Yes, they go to the editor's session at the National Scientific Congress and the editor-in-chief currently, John Loadsman, will present that award to them then and there. But it also gets announced in the journal as well. And so what were the papers that won this year? Well, the two papers that won this year were very different. And one was a paper, the two authors, one of them, Cassia Kalinsky, was a registrar of Prince of Wales here in Sydney. And the senior author was Natalie Smith from Wollongong Hospital and the School of Medicine at the University of Wollongong. And the paper was entitled Surgical Prehabilitation Using Mobile Health Coaching in Patients with Obesity, a pilot study. As anaesthetists, we work very much in the, the high-tech end of medicine. We don't do a lot of primary health care. But this paper, they looked at their patients on the waiting lists. And in Australia, you know, we do have waiting lists that stretch out to 12 months or more. They're getting even longer in Victoria. Exactly. And certainly post-COVID, they are going to be longer. And some of the early studies have shown that patients will gain more weight while they're on a waiting list. So 40% of patients will be heavier uh, a year later. And some of the public health things like weight loss and cessation of smoking can be addressed beforehand. So they wanted to try, and as you know, these are significant risk factors for anaesthetists. For patients too. That's right, exactly. And as you know, anaesthetists are the last ones to get a look in. So we may hear about the patient a few days before their operation, sometimes the day of the operation. So what Cassia and Natalie did was that they looked at the patients on the waiting list and they got their details and it was all done with ethics committee approval, etc. And they had a automated phone system that sent the patient a couple of messages a week. I think it was about four SMSs a week. And this was for over six months. And it was in a variety of areas about nutrition, about healthy eating, um, about doing a little bit more exercise every day, about checking with their GP and getting appropriate medical management. And one of the things we know about getting people to lose weight or smoking, which are longer term health things, is that the more people that intervene, get the patient and say to them, look, you should give up smoking, you know, you're a risk for this and this, the more likely the patient is to do it. And it's something anaesthetists should do, even at our normal preoperative visit, we will still care for our patients and get them through their surgery. Exactly. Don't miss an opportunity for a touch point on those things. Exactly. And so that's what they did. And they found out of even this small group that they had, they had 22 patients and about 18 who followed through over the six months, that about 40% of them decreased their smoking intake and about 40% lost weight. And these were patients that had BMIs over 30 and some of them lost between 2 and 12 kilos in that period of time. That's quite significant. 
I loved hearing there was one that lost enough weight that they didn't need their knee replacement pin anymore. I thought that was a fantastic outcome. Exactly right. And I think the total cost of all these automated messages coming through was about $7.20 per patient. Huge cost benefit. Yeah, that's right. And a very good and easy thing to do and to get patients mm. just a little more fitter for surgery, make their surgery less risk for them and our job a little easier. Yeah, exactly. I can see why that might have won an award based on the originality of the idea. Exactly. I, I mean, anaesthetists are very much clinicians who are hands-on and, and through COVID, even pre-op assessment, we've had to embrace telehealth, which is not, as we all know, not always ideal, but this sort of thing may help and be a good long-term alternative. Yeah, exactly. So can you tell us about the other paper that won the award as well? Yeah. Now, the other paper was, is a little more technical and, and a lot more uh, specific to anaesthetists. The first author was Yasmin Endlich, who uh, comes from the Department of Anesthesia at Royal Adelaide Hospital and the Women's and Children's Hospital, and Julie Lee, who is from the University of Adelaide and Brisbane Women's Hospital. And more recently, our very hardworking PPAC chair as well. Yes, and Martin Culwick. And Martin, who's also in Brisbane, has also had a big involvement in the concept of web airs which is a voluntary anaesthesia incident reporting database, an online reporting database for adverse events that occur under anaesthesia. I've just done a podcast with Martin, actually. It's another big initiative that the ASA supports. Yes, and, it, and it's a fantastic thing. We know that the majority of patients who come to surgery, we will get them through their surgery safe and sound. And Australia is one of the safest countries in the world to have an anaesthetic. But we do undertake very major surgery in very sick patients of all ages. And whatever we can do to make it a little better and a little safer is always worthwhile. So what Yasmin and her group did, but they looked at 4,000 reports that came through this database and they were looking at problems with the airway. And as we know for anaesthetists, a failed or a difficult intubation or mismanagement of an airway is a potential for disaster under anaesthesia. What they did was they went through and analysed these 170 cases where things went wrong and why they went wrong and what the patient outcomes were. So this is really the, the pointy end of when things go wrong with anaesthesia. As we know that the disasters in anaesthesia are allergic reactions, major bleeding, airway disasters and conditions like malignant hypothermia. They're all uncommon, but we do need to be prepared for them. So what they found was that out of the 170-odd patients, two-thirds of them were very difficult to intubate and one-third they couldn't intubate. And these mm. reports came from all over Australia and New Zealand and over a period of about eight years. So it's not a common event, but if you're the patient, it's a very major event. Mm. And they looked at all the risk factors and all the different things that they needed to do and for an anaesthetist, when you're working with airways and patients with difficult airways, this sort of information is invaluable in trying to sort out what to do when you get that problem patient. Interestingly, about 40% of these cases occurred after hours in emergency settings. Now, emergency cases always carry a higher risk by the nature of whatever's wrong with the patient. And the majority of our surgery really is done in hours. We do much less surgery out of hours, but they can be much more challenging cases. And in about half of the patients, about 55%, they didn't anticipate any difficulty with the airway. 
So then had to turn around and look at what they were going to do and how they're going to manage it. That's a real wake-up call for anaesthetists when you hear that, isn't it? It is. And that's why we thought this paper was very valuable. And one of the things that we all know and we practice and, and part of our continuing professional development is the point of how we perform in a difficult situation. And so they looked at issues like fatigue, availability of specific equipment, team communication issues, pressure to proceed with surgery where it may have been a better option to wake the patient up and go to a different plan. And out of all the different techniques of managing the airway, it was interesting, there was no one specific technique that was always successful. And as we know, you've always got to look at the options depending on the clinical circumstances. Exactly. Different horses for different courses. That's exactly right. Were there any deaths reported in the 4,000 patients? There were. There was a mild complication rate, I think, of about 30-odd percent, and that was the transient drop in, in oxygen saturation, which didn't carry any untoward effects and was remedied. There were about 12% that had moderate harm, and some of these were mild airway trauma, minor aspiration of food going into the lungs, and there were about 3.5% of the cases that had severe harm. Four of these patients had a cardiac arrest, needing full cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Some needed a surgical airway at the front of the neck, and uh, some ended up in ICU. Uh, there were three deaths out of the 170 patients, but only one was related to the airway. Uh, the other two were deaths from other factors, surgical factors. It is one of the rarer events, but one of the things that we are very highly trained at preventing and managing. That's right. And, and it shows that we need to continue looking at this sort of data so that we don't get complacent in what we do and identify the clinical red flags for the patients that are going to give us trouble. Exactly. Very important paper for that point of view. Every year, the journal also awards a junior researcher prize. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, the junior researcher award uh, started in 2017 and it's picked on a junior researcher who is less than five years as a consultant. So their, their first five years of specialist qualification. And the prize is the same as the best paper award. And this was to try and encourage people to go ahead and do more research in their career and, uh, and stimulate that sort of research. So again, they received $2,000 and complimentary registration at the National Scientific Congress? Correct. Correct. Great, great prize. Yes. yes. And uh, this year, the, the for, for 2020, the first author was uh, Dr. Jessica Lim from the Department of Anesthesia at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital here in Sydney. It was a very serious paper. Jess, along with her senior author, Professor Peter Cam, wrote a paper called The Neuroimmune Mechanisms of Pain, Basic Science and Potential Therapeutic Modulators. And I won't go into the details about it, but it was a very basic science sort of paper. I think the nature of medical publication is such that you don't always get a lot of junior authors writing major papers. They need, for this award, need to be the first author. And so junior authors are often further down the, uh, the ranking on the author listing. Uh, Jess was the first author, so had obviously done a lot of work on this paper. And uh, it was out of the couple of papers that were submitted was by far and away the best submission. And it reads like a very comprehensive review article of all the basic science. Correct. Yes. It wasn't a randomised controlled trial or an interventional study, but it was a very comprehensive review of the information. 
Exactly. And as we know, these sort of detailed review articles give the, the clinician all the information they need in one spot. You read it, you've got a great grasp of the topic. And certainly then when new drugs come through or other studies, you can put it into context as what's appropriate. And the science around pain and pain physiology has advanced so quickly. So I thought it was really good to have that all in that one article. That's right. It does change very quickly. And I think for busy clinicians like us, it does make it a lot easier when somebody's done all that hard work and they deserve a prize for the many, many hours of work they do to put into that. Hopefully that's some good news for anyone out there who's considering writing a review article that it doesn't have to be a randomized control trial to be submitted to the journal and certainly not uh, to be eligible for this prize, that doing that incredible amount of book work is also sufficient research for publication and for the prize. That's right. And these these papers get reviewed by two reviewers as well, like any other submission to the journal. So it does go through quite a stringent review process. That's good because I know it takes a lot of connections, funding, all those things to get going in research. But doing something like writing a really comprehensive review article, the technology is there and available for most junior consultants. That's right. The the most important thing is to find something that's a little bit different or new or that needs reviewing. And as we know, medicine is always changing and and there is always a need for a, a cutting edge review on a new topic that's coming up. Oh, there you go. Great. Hopefully some more papers and prizes coming forward in the next few years. Yes, that's right. I know we'll be we're watching out for them and, and encouraging them. Great. Now, the David Zuck Prize is awarded from the UK. Correct. As part of the journal, we have a history supplement, uh, which we publish each year, uh, which I edit. And there are usually about five or six original papers in that. And the History of Anesthesia Society in the United Kingdom have an annual award for the best paper. And it's in honour of David Zuck, who was a senior consultant in London. He only died a few years ago in his 90s. So the first award occurred in 2018. And it's for the best paper published in English on the history of anaesthesia and related fields in the previous year. And it's from any journal globally? Correct. Anybody can submit. It's only been going now for four years, but uh, I'm very pleased to say that history papers from our journal have won the last three years. Wow, that's incredible. Three out of the four years comes to anaesthesia and intensive care. We, we feel very flattered to have that, but I think it also says something about the quality of the papers that we're publishing, yeah. that the British History of Anaesthesia Society felt it was worthwhile to honour those papers. So we were very honoured indeed and, and very grateful. And do you know what the recipients of the prize? Uh, yeah, that's a certificate. It, it, it's acknowledgement for a job well done. Good to get international recognition. Yes, indeed. And that paper this year was a history of pandemics and it was very timely. It came from Melbourne and the lead author was Adam Levin, uh, a junior consultant, and it was from cholera to COVID-19, how pandemics have shaped the development of anaesthesia and intensive care medicine. And I think it was a very timely paper and a lay person could read this paper. It was very interesting and covered everything from cholera to diphtheria to the Spanish flu, you know, 100 years ago, to polio, to the current days when we've had SARS and MERS and now COVID. 
And you realize that a lot of uh, lessons in all these pandemics about how people react and respond to them, but also you realize how much medicine has progressed. Yes, exactly. It's a big progress in medicine occurs with wars and with pandemics, isn't it? Exactly right. When you read the things about the Spanish flu, uh, you know, of 1918 to 1919, one in three people in the world got it. Uh, so it was about 500 million people got it and 50 million died, so about 10%. percent incredible, isn't it? That's right. And there was no screening like we have now. There was no immunisation like we have now. There was no intensive care like we have now. Interestingly, they said uh, they realised a lot of them probably died from secondary bacterial pneumonia. But even the use of supplemental oxygen was difficult to get for a lot of these patients. And in some ways, history is repeating itself that we know in a lot of countries in the world with COVID-19, oxygen supplies are absolutely critical or even non-existent in some of the low resource countries. In affluent countries, we've got plenty of oxygen, but a lot of those countries, patients will die from lack of oxygen even today. And Mm -hmm. oxygen is an essential medicine on the WHO medication list. Exactly. We saw those images from India of people trying to get oxygen and also out of Brazil and how they struggled. Yes, very, very sobering. There are something like 40 or 50 countries in the world with critical oxygen supplies at the moment through the pandemic. Incredible. Yeah. And I know the WFSA has been working on this. They've had a global appeal. What was it called? Oxygen for Africa. I should know that, but we, the ASA did donate to that appeal. So ho- hopefully that has contributed to addressing that issue with a- access and equity of resources. Did the article that won the David Zuck Prize Was that also the winner of the Halmer or the Haru Prize? Correct. So the journal to encourage appropriate research and publication of articles on the history of anaesthesia, intensive care, pain medicine, all the related fields, the journal also has a prize every two years for the best paper published in the last two years. So another panel looks at them independently, There are no conflicts of interest. We make sure that none of the authors are on that panel. And they also pick the same paper, which is a great compliment to the authors that they got two papers. So they get a certificate and $600. And I must mention now that the authors of the History of Pandemic paper, uh, Adam Levin and Christine Ball and Peter Featherston, donated their money back to the ASA History of Anesthesia Research Unit, which is the Harry Daly Museum and the Richard Bailey Library, which is a very generous and kind gesture. Very generous indeed. And we're calling it HARU now, aren't we? H-A-R-U, which is the History of Anesthesia Research Unit. Yes. And those those who've been around the traps might have known it by its previous name, which I referred to before as HALMA. Correct. Which is the History of Anesthesia Library. Museum and Artifacts. I think the committee might still use that name. I'm not sure. But Haru, because as we know, it's not just anaesthesia, it's people, it's equipment, it's pharmacology, it's intensive care medicine, it's resuscitation, it's pain medicine. It's all the things we get involved in. So uh, we've got some very good papers coming out in the history supplement this year, which are already out online. Uh, One of which was fascinating was about the flying doctor service and one of the early pilots giving the anaesthetics when the patients were too sick in remote areas to be transferred and needed immediate surgery. Wow. So uh, there's a few interesting papers that you look at and not everything is like we think it is and how we practice each day. 
Yeah, we definitely have a varied practice, a diverse group of people from a diverse set of backgrounds practicing very diverse medicine in Australia. That's right. Exactly right. Well, look, that's been wonderful. It's been great having a catch up on all the prize winners. Congratulations to them all. Thank you for your time today. And also thank you for the incredible amount of work that you put into the journal, being part of the editorial board and chairing the various subcommittees that you chair. Susie, thank you very much. And and I hope this encourages our, our colleagues to keep submitting and doing good research and especially our younger consultants. There is something to be had if you put that extra little bit of work in. So thank you very much for this. Great. Thanks, Michael. There you go, everyone. Please don't be discouraged. Be encouraged to write and submit. Exactly. Thank you, Susie. So there you have it. Congratulations once again to all the prize winners from this year. We had the joint winners of the Jeanette Thurwell Best Paper Award for 2020, which went to Drs. Kasia Kalinsky and Natalie Smith for their paper on surgical prehabilitation using mobile health coaching in patients with obesity, a pilot study, a very nifty use of SMS messages to improve outcomes for patients on waiting lists. And the other joint winners were Yasmin Enlick, Julie Lee and Melton Colwick for their report on difficult and failed intubations in the first 4,000 incidents reported on WebAirs. And as I mentioned, WebAirs is another initiative that the ASA supports and there should be a podcast coming out about that fairly soon. There was also the Junior Researcher Award for 2020, which went to Dr Jessica Lim, who co-authored a paper with Peter Cam on the neuroimmune mechanisms of pain, basic science and potential therapeutic modulators, which is a fantastic review article on the basic science of pain and how it can be modulated. And finally, there was a paper written by Adam Levin and Christine Ball and Peter Featherston, which is titled From Cholera to COVID-19, How Pandemics Have Shaped the Development of Anesthesia and Intensive Care in Australia. And that has won two prizes. It's won the David Zuck Memorial Prize, an international prize, as well as being awarded a prize from our very own History of Anesthesia Research Unit. So congratulations once again to all the authors. I'm hoping this podcast might have inspired some of you out there who have thought about medical writing. It's never too late to get into it. And who knows, next year we might be hearing your name on this podcast. All right, until then, hope you're staying safe out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, theasa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>